Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an emergency physician from Upstate joins us from the Javits Center in New York City where he is overseeing the care of COVID-19 patients. 95% of the care being provided at this facility right now, maybe even more like 97 or 98%, is being provided by the military. Uh, there's a very, very, very little uh, small civilian component. A medical sociologist helps us understand the curve and make sense of the charts and maps we see related to the coronavirus pandemic. When we look at curves, they keep being referred to as predictions. I think what we need to do is reframe the conversation, curves being possibilities. And a sleep specialist explains what it takes to get a good night's sleep when you're worried. All that plus a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus-themed episode, a medical sociologist helps us understand the curve and make sense of the charts and maps we see related to the pandemic. Then we'll hear from a sleep specialist about what it takes to get a good night's sleep when you're worried. But first, the doctor overseeing medical care at the Javits Convention Center in New York City is a physician from Upstate's Department of Emergency Medicine. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The chief medical officer at the Javits Convention Center in New York City during this pandemic has been Dr. Christopher Tansky, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate. He's talking with me via web conferencing software. Thank you for making time for Health Week on Air, Dr. Tansky. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us how you were selected to oversee the care of COVID patients at the Javits Convention Center? So the... Um... Uh, this facility is a state facility. It's run by the uh, uh, New York State Department of Health, and uh, it's been open for about three weeks, and the Department of Health uh, didn't really have a, a kind of a physician uh, leader here, so they had reached out uh, to me through Upstate uh, to serve as the chief medical officer down here, and uh, Upstate was uh, kind enough to loan me out, so to speak, and so I'm down here um, uh, really representing the Department of Health as their chief medical officer uh, on the, uh, at Javits here uh, and uh, taking a, a little bit of a, a break from my uh, duties at Upstate. So had you ever been to Javits before for any like event of any sort or is this your first time there? No, I've, I've, I've been here before. It's interesting you ask that. I, I don't think I'll ever be able to look at this place the same way again when I come back for our conference. It's definitely... Uh, you know, I've never, I'm, uh, seeing it as a hospital, I'm reminded walking around of the conferences I've been to here. It's just very, uh, very unusual. Well, what does it look like? Can you describe it for us? Yeah, we have, uh, you know, Javits has, is an enormous con convention center. We, um, you know, one of the large exhibit halls uh, is, uh, several of them actually are, uh, have been turned into a hospital. So uh, there's curtains set up, long rows of, of small cubicles that are bounded by curtains. Uh, there's, uh, they're set up into pods, so there's about 16 rooms in each section, uh, and at the moment we have uh, about 15 or 16 of those sections set up, and, uh, you know, uh, so it's all with white curtains uh, on the outside, there's no walls or anything, so uh, we've tried to do the best we can. Each room has a bed in it, uh, and, uh, you know, an oxygen source if the patients need it, and, uh, perhaps a commode or something else for them. And uh, that's about it. It's very simplistic, uh, but it gets the job done. And so we're trying to uh, kind of take as many patients as possible. It does make it a little bit difficult to get around because everything looks the same. So when you get into the middle of it, you sometimes uh, lose your sense of orientation as to where you are because all the rooms look the same. Wow. So now did you, were you responsible for arranging beds and staffing and equipment or was that sort of, did the state health department sort of do that part of it? Well, uh, it, so it was done ahead of time, but it was actually done by the military. So, um, you know, being a disaster, the uh, state, uh, you know, the city needed help and the, the city asked the state and the state uh, requested that the military come set up its installation. And so, uh, you know, when this was set up, which was about, I think, three weeks ago, 
It was set up by the Army, the Navy, the Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Public Health Service, uh, really all, uh, all with them. And so they brought in medical units. There are hundreds of military personnel here. And they're still primarily kind of the ones providing care. 95% of the care being provided at this facility right now, maybe even more like 97 or 98%, is being provided by the military. Uh, there's a very, very, very little uh, small civilian component. So uh, the military, is that nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists? What is it all of that? Yeah, it's everything. Uh, the Army has, you know, medical units, uh, field hospitals that have been set up. They've all been brought in. There's a number of them here. Uh, as folks know, the U.S., uh, the Comfort ship is here as well. Uh, that's a little bit, not quite uh, exactly part of our organization here, but it's literally right outside. And so we have tons of uh, Army uh, physicians and nurses and medics and uh, the Navy as well, and public health people all from, uh, you know, around the country that are here. And uh, this is what they do. They set up mobile field hospitals. And so you know, we're only just in the very, very, very early stages of trying to kind of start to get civilians in here to augment that response. Everything right now is done by the military. And so between the U.S., uh, the Comfort Ship and the Javits Center, are they, are you divided up between who is caring for COVID-infected patients and who is caring for patients who are not infected? At this point, we're only taking patients who are infected with COVID. So the, that was originally not the case, but right now both the Comfort and the Javits are only taking COVID patients. So all the patients here are positive. Uh, so we're essentially a COVID hospital. So how do the, do the patients come directly there from their home or do they go to a hospital first and then a hospital decides to send them to you? Yeah, so they, they, there's no direct admissions here. There's no ER here. So the patients are all transferred from other hospitals. So we have uh, a variety of ways that happens. We have uh, uh, hospitals and doctors can call in on the phone. We have very detailed, specific criteria about what type of patients we can accept here. And so that can be reviewed by phone. Uh, and uh, then the transfers can be arranged where the ambulance goes, picks the patients up and bring them here. The other thing is that we have direct representatives from all the hospitals here. So there's several major large hospital systems in New York City, and all of those hospital systems have sent groups of representatives here to the Javits Center. As a matter of fact, they're all sitting uh, kind of in the same area that I am, and they spend all day long uh, talking with their colleagues at the hospitals, identifying patients and approving patients to be transferred. And so, uh, you know, we have uh, quotas and, and goals we set every day for how many patients we have and how many we want to take in and how many we're going to discharge. And uh, we're working very hard to offload the hospitals uh, and take patients here and at the comfort as well. So none of these patients are there to decide whether they have COVID. They, they all have, they've all tested positive. That's and correct. Yep, everyone here is positive for the virus. So they have varying levels of need or do you, I mean, do you have some intensive care patients? And We and do have some. Yep. Uh, there, th so this facility uh, originally was not designed to take intensive care patients, but if you think about it, uh, you know, you're going to have patients here that get worse suddenly. And so we need to have the capability to care for those. So very early in the process, we mobilized and set up a uh, intensive care unit here. Uh, I don't have the number in front of me. Last I looked, our intensive care unit had about 25 patients in it. Uh, right now, we have the capability to care for 48 ICU patients, and we can expand that if needed. And so those patients would be patients that were here and got worse, and so they would be moved to our ICU. We have ventilators there, all the things you would need. We don't try to, take, uh, to, to sort of take those patients. So if someone goes to the ICU, we would try to, uh, if, they, if we can't kind of quickly turn them around, to send them back to the hospital they came from. Uh, but we are running an ICU, and the Comfort does have an ICU as well. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Tansky. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate, and he's the chief medical officer at the Javits Convention Center in New York City during this pandemic. So can you tell me what your day's like uh, as medical director there? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, have been getting here about 7 or 7.30. Uh, we, you know, we're eating all three meals here pretty much. There's nowhere, you know, really no restaurants open in New York. So, um, you know, uh, I have to approve all medical policies here. So, again, this, think of this as a hospital that just opened three weeks ago. And uh, so 
you know, we have to have policies for how, you know, how we provide care, uh, you know, what patients we take, what we do with them, uh, all those processes. And, and this is, you know, again, these are not normal standards of care. This is a crisis. So the standards of care are different. So I'm reviewing a variety of those every day uh, that come from our military providers and improving those and uh, making new ones. We're also spending a significant amount of our time on, on finding civilian staff. So uh, we are in need of civilians. Uh, and We have uh, people here whose only job is to review uh, resumes and uh, candidates from the state. The state is identified. Uh, just today, we uh, brought in a group of 10 civilian doctors uh, to start working today to complement the military staff. So I have some folks reviewing that. And I have to approve all of those people and uh, give them credentials and so forth. Uh, a good part of my day is spent down on the floor. Um, so I'm not caring for patients directly, but at least once, usually two or three times a day, I will go down onto the floor of the hospital itself uh, to talk to the providers, the nurses, to see the patients, to identify needs. Um, just today, we identified uh, from talking to some of the nurses that uh, we needed a way to keep track of the charts better. And so we're gonna try to find some sort of a rack or something they can put the charts in. But there's no way to know that unless you go down there and uh, see and talk to the providers and the patients. So I do that at least once a day uh, and uh, usually more often. And then, uh, you know, there's, um, I'm the liaison to the state. So a good part of my day is spent explaining to the state what's going on, uh, talking about budgeting and equipment and, uh, you know, what are our plans moving forward? So I have to, uh, you know, be the eyes and ears for the state uh, here as well. Have there been any shortages of medication or equipment or protective gear? How's that running? I don't know that I would say there have been shortages. Uh, having said that, there are also certain, are, are, you know, major surpluses. Um, you know, there is a whole group here that uh, handles logistics, and we get reports every day of the supply. So, um, you know, part of it is is just having to order stuff to begin with. So, you know, the, this is a convention center, and it was an empty hall. So, you know, you have to set up a hospital, you have to order beds. Uh, when I first got here, there were no call bells. So you think of something simple in a hospital, like a call bell, or you push the button if you need your nurse. We didn't have any. Huh. Uh, so we've had to find those. And, uh, you know, we had to get monitoring equipment for patients. We had to get an oxygen supply. We had to get running water, bathrooms, all of which we could separate, you know, for the patients only because they're positive for the virus. Um, PPE is an issue. I mean, we've had a good supply of PPE, uh, but you know, every day we identify how much we've used and how many days we have left. And we, you know, when we identify, you know, today we identified a particular type of item that we were running a bit low on. So we had to work with the federal partners and the state to uh, find additional sources for that. So we haven't run out of anything, but um, you know, uh, we don't have unlimited supplies as well. So you know, there's an entire logistics unit here who. Every day prepares a report of everything we have and how much we need. And, you know, when we need something, we, you know, go all out to find it. We look locally, we look at the state level, we look at it with our federal partners and uh, the process is tremendous, but you just, you know, when you need something, you have to find it and you have to get creative about it. Well, I don't want to get too technical, but I have read that there's uh, a little bit of a debate among physicians about treating COVID-19 patients as patients who have acute respiratory distress in sure. terms of whether they should be on ventilators or not? Is there, what are, what are your sort of your standing orders there at the Javits Center? Uh, so again, you know, we um, are not specifically looking at that. We, you know, we don't generally take patients in transfer who are already on ventilators, although we can. We took four last night in a particular situation where a hospital really needed us to take them. Uh, you know, we're trying to be contemporary and use, uh, you know, evidence-based uh, medicine. I've been in touch with some of the colleagues back at Upstate. Um, we are not doing clinical trials here. So medications that people might get in clinical trials, we don't have access to. We're using some of the common medications to treat it that people have been using. If someone needs to be put on a ventilator, we're doing that. Uh, again, we would try to work to get that patient back to the hospital. Uh, but, you know, we can certainly keep them on ventilators here. We've not had any, you know, uh, there, there's no any nothing about rationing or anything like that. Everything everyone is getting you know as much care as appropriate, um, and we're trying to you know. I mean, it's nice when in this situation because you have providers from all around the country in different walks of life, and so you can really have some good discussions about what are you doing and what are you seeing and what's the best way to treat these patients. Has anything surprised you about how this disease affects people? 
Uh, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, um, what we have seen in some cases is, um, you know, people will get a mild or a, a minor or mild illness. They might have a little bit of a cough. Uh, they might be in the hospital with a little bit of a lower oxygen level, but really not doing all that badly, you know, certainly not on a ventilator, able to kind of function normally. And sometimes you see after five, six, seven days, they just, uh, they, they, they get a bit worse. And, uh, you know, you think that things are going better and they suddenly get worse. We haven't seen that in every case, but, uh, you know, I've seen that here as well as back at Upstate before I came down here. And so that's a, a little unusual for me. Uh, so we, we are trying to watch these patients very closely uh, and sort of keep an eye on them and see, uh, you know, how their course is. Uh, but that's some unusual things we've seen from time to time. Well, I imagine you'll be bringing all sorts of um, lessons learned to, you know, back to upstate um, yeah. Yeah. at some point. How difficult has it been for you to be away from your family? Uh, it's been tough. Uh, I wasn't uh, even, <clears throat> excuse me, I wasn't even home to begin with. Um, I had, uh, about a week before I came down here, I left my home and moved into a hotel in Syracuse because I was uh, afraid of uh, bringing the virus home to my family. I have a wife and a four-year-old daughter and a six-month-old daughter. So I had already been gone. So I essentially moved from one hotel down, down to here. And, uh, you know, who really knows, uh, you know, when this is going to be over and when I'll, uh, you know, be able to get back to Syracuse and even then when I'll be able to get back home. Uh, so, you know, you try to chat and have FaceTime and so forth, but uh, it's difficult. Uh, just because you're of the exposure potential, when you do come back home, you'll probably have to be quarantined for a while too, right? Yeah, those those guidelines are kind of in process. Um, we, um, you know, depending on who you ask, there's different guidelines about 14 days or seven days. We're fortunate here to have some very sophisticated testing, uh, different than you'll see in any, anywhere else that we've uh, been able to get our hands on. So uh, we, we might not have to do quite that much. We're thinking about what we're going to do for all the providers when they leave. And, uh, we might be able to shorten that a little bit based on some of the uh, kind of new uh, testing that we have access to here. But it's a topic of discussion every day. We're trying to figure out what to do uh, when everybody here goes home and uh, yeah, I think there will be a quarantine period, but we're trying to see if we can get that down a little bit. Uh, but we're not quite sure yet. Well, so is the military uh, providing all of the meals at the Javits Center? No, uh, we are using catering. Uh, the um, you know we are trying to do our best to support the local industry. So uh, you know we're uh, using catering to get food here from uh, local vendors and so forth. Uh, and uh, again, you know, most of the staff here are eating three meals here a day as well because we're here so much. So uh, we are trying to support, you know, the local eateries and food places. And so they bring food in from different places every day. And uh, we're trying to do, you know, work with that, uh, some sort of similar thing for patients. So uh, military is not providing the food. We're trying to use uh, local sources for that. And then you're staying nearby? At a, are you able to walk to your where your lodging is? Yes. Yeah, so uh, there's obviously, as you might imagine, with the hundreds of people down here where, you know, there's a variety of hotels. Uh, the one we're at is two blocks away. So it's a very quick walk in the morning and at night, uh, which is good because, again, most of us are spending, you know, more than 12 hours a day here. And so uh, when you head out, uh, it's a very uh, couple block walk back to the hotel, uh, which is nice, given uh, that, you know, occasionally you have to come back at night for some sort of emergency here as well. So it's good to be close. Wow. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you to Dr. Christopher Tansky. He's the chief medical officer at the Javits Convention Center in New York City and an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. What data goes into the charts that help medical experts project the impact of the pandemic? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We've heard so much about the curve in reference to this pandemic, and today I'm talking with a medical sociologist who can help us understand what's important to know about that curve, and some of the other maps and projections about which we're hearing. Talking with me via web conferencing is Dr. Christopher Morley. He's Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Morley. 
Nice to see you again, Emma. So we've seen so many maps lately with different curves on them. Which one can we believe? Oh, well, that's that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, one of the things that I think we have to think about when we look at curves is that uh, they keep being referred to as predictions. And for public use, I think what we need to do is reframe the conversation as curves being possibilities about what happens under a set of given assumptions. So for example, when we see the, the curves that are being shown as predictions for our county, that's prediction, those are predictions based upon what happens, say, in a worst case scenario where people fail at social distancing and have an outbreak that begins called exponential growth. That means instead of adding a few cases a day, you start exploding and adding multiples of cases every day. And that's, that's what happened in New York, and that's what happened in Milan. And there's a, a number that gets thrown around in the literature that I wanted to break down, and that's called the R value. The R value is the reproduction rate of a pathogen. It's the rate at which new people uh, become infected by, by, by an individual. And that's how many people that that person could infect. Correct. Yes. But even and, that, isn't that based on like if one person is sick and they live in a household with one other person and don't go out, they're only going to be able to infect one person. But if that infected person goes to a party, they can infect everyone there, right? Right. So the R value, a lot, a lot goes into an R value. And really an R value is, is an observed behavior of a pathogen. When we see, for example, that, that a pathogen spreads by bodily fluids or by touch, that's going to uh, impact how, how a pathogen spreads through community, whereas if it spreads via respiratory droplets. So there's, there's biological activity on, and, and as well as how long a person stays uh, infectious but not but asymptomatic. Those are, those are attributes of the, of the virus. The other thing, though, as you, as you just surmised correctly, is that the, the, the rate at which people are contacting one another, regardless of the means of transmission of the virus, if people avoid getting into situations where it's transmitted, that's gonna lower the R as well. And that's what we're doing now is a massive social exercise. So in addition to that R value though, there's some other data that you need to, to go into to be able to make these predictions, right? Correct, so the R values we use are often based on what we've seen in other cities uh, or other counties or other nations. So for example, when we first were, were predicting very dire uh, forecasts, we were looking at places like Milan. Um, but the, the, the rate at which people are actually socially distancing is important. So for example, uh, in Northern Italy, this, the, the, the society did not socially distance quickly enough. In a place like New York State, where um, where we responded to the beginning of the epidemic in New York City, but when you responded as an entire state, uh, the upstate communities may have benefited from those that, that 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 rapid action. So you see explosive growth in the city and its suburbs, but upstate we've managed to to uh, not quite hit that curve yet because we distanced at the same time when they were in the middle of their beginning of, of their their upward. And we were still in, in our nascent phase. The other thing that is important is the size of the population when we look at these curves. Not just the raw size of the population, but how many people in the population are actually uh, susceptible to the illness. Because as the curve proceeds, more and more people will have the virus and develop antibodies. And we hear a lot about antibody testing. More and more people uh, will recover. And eventually, like you said, uh, if people are completely asusceptible because they're not in contact, if they manage, if some people manage to socially distance, there's some argument to be said that they might not count towards the total. So our curves, when you see these curves, they are predictions of a, of a possibility of what happens if we, if we, uh, like you said, go to that party. Um, because right now, what we think is there are probably there's certainly COVID in the community, and we see evidence of that. That's that's plain, we are still on an upward trend. We're not explosively growing, but we are still on an upward upward uh, growth rate of, of, of new cases. But it's here. And all it takes for, for there are, basically the, the analogy is that there are embers everywhere. 
and you don't know which one is going to start the fire. And if we were to suddenly all return to normal living, for example, we believe that some of those curves you see that are dramatic are what would happen in that case. And what we're actually seeing now is a result of people actually doing um, doing some work on social distancing. Now we're not probably not doing enough, to be honest. Uh, the, the, the company called Lumicast is putting out our grades. Uh, the last grade I saw put Onondaga County at about a C plus and some of our neighboring counties much lower. And so we can do better. But I think that's one message. We can certainly make sure that we are, we are maintaining physical distances to the extent possible. Well, let me ask think- you this. I don't mean to interrupt, but comparing us like with what's happening in New York City, and we see the numbers so high there, is that because of their density? There's just so many people that it they can't distance enough to make a difference? That's that's probably uh, probably a part of it. The, the, you certainly have a massive population there. It's also a travel hub. You have a lot of people coming and going. Uh, New York City is starting to start not the, the, the emergency is not over. When people hear it's tapering, it means that at least the the growth has stopped. You still have a lot of cases. You're still getting cases every day. It doesn't mean that the faucet is 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 turned off. It just means in the arc when you're turning the flow on, it's starting to maybe lessen a little bit. But that's it's still an emergency there. But What's happening is that it is starting to to respond to the, what distancing they could do, but the initial outbreak uh, certainly was due to density and and the, just the amount of throughput, the amount of travel. I mean, you've got three major airports flying in and out of New York City. You've got it's a, it's a hub for all sorts of activity. And what you're seeing now is that where it's where it's hit, it's it's spiking now are in the New York City suburbs. Um, yeah. Well, compared um, to the last pandemic. A hundred years ago, the 1918 Spanish flu. One of the things that's different or new for this pandemic is the availability of cell phone data. What have you been able to learn from that? That's been helpful. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. So that is the what I referred to before is the Unicast data. If people wanted to look online and find Unicast, U-N-A-C-A-S-T, they can see county ratings. And uh, initially. Because our numbers were low, we weren't seeing early correlations between the unicast data, which is the cell phone data. It's, it's seeing how close people are to one another, how much they're moving, how, how what kind of distances they're traveling, um, and how, how often cell phones are coming into contact with one another. Um, uh, early on, we weren't seeing tight correlations, but with a little bit more data, we're going to be able to see whether uh, the grades that unicast gives us uh, correlate with spikes probably eight eight or so days later. But we're watching that closely and more to come on that, that, that front. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Chris Morley, the Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. So there's maps out there that show the actual numbers of people infected in various towns in Onondaga County. I'm sure this is available for the other counties as well along with a calculation of what percent of that population has been infected. Is that too much information for us or, or does it serve a purpose? Well, I, I think um, if we go from the perspective that all information is good, it serves a purpose in knowing that it's real. Um, I think we, we should caution our listeners to see into thinking that because the numbers seem so small that this isn't the problem. And there were a few points I wanted to make with that, if I may. The first is that those small cases represent the fact not that we are we don't have a problem here, but that the virus is in our community. If we're not going through not just the inconvenience, but the actual suffering people are feeling, we don't do that, that those small numbers will become large numbers and will impact us all. So the suffering people are are feeling right now is worth it because if you're on the map. As, as having cases, it's worth it's, it's worth avoiding. The second thing that I wanted to say is that if you see that it's in your community, understand that this is not just about COVID. That those spikes don't just represent, say, the argument that we're going to just get through it and get it over with. If we do something like that, like let everybody get infected and let ha- what happens happens, people will die, of course. But the bigger issue at this moment is that they'll overwhelm the health system. And that's not just about COVID, that's about the entire health system. If you need an emergency appendectomy, if you have a car accident, you don't want 
your health system overwhelmed. So this is truly about all of us. And the curves are as much about what happens in the population and most people getting it and, get, and developing antibodies and moving on. It's about what that spike will do because some part of that population, and we're still trying to figure out how much of that percentage is. I wouldn't want to quote a number on air because that number keeps moving because this is a brand new virus, but some population will need to be hospitalized and that will absorb resources that everybody needs. So how do you explain to someone what harm they may be doing if they gather with their friends to go for a canoe ride or if they go pair up with friends to go shopping because some of the stores are still open. How do you explain to them how that's not, not good? Well, one thing that I would want to make sure that people realize is that they are susceptible and that the risks are severe. Uh, if, if you think about it, there are lots of uh, models on the internet that just, and when I'm talking about models, I don't just mean curves, I mean, depictions, whether, whether people use dominoes or dots or ping pong balls bouncing into each other. But, but all I would urge someone to do is look, look, look at the media and find the stories about what happens when one party occurs and suddenly seven or eight family members leave and they're sick. And those family members have gone out, they've left that party and they've had contact with two or three people each. And it doesn't take a mathematician to do that math, that if you have a gathering of 15 people and one of them is sick, and at least half of that party, if not more, leave having been exposed to the virus, potentially the entire party was exposed to the virus, how quickly that explodes. And that by doing what we're doing, we need to recognize that that's having some good. We're not in an explosive growth curve yet, because we're going through the pain and because we're not having that party. Um, I do think it's important for people to take care of themselves. It's important for people to maintain physical distance, but find new ways to maintain social connectedness. And we're lucky, unlike in the 1918 Spanish flu, that we have the means to do that all around us. And staying socially connected and finding new ways to interact and new ways to conduct our lives while maintaining physical distance is going to be really important because the suffering people are going through now with, so, with, with physical distancing is important. When will we know when this is over and we can get back to normal or start getting back to normal? Are there models based on predictions for that? Well, here's the thing. It's such a new virus that uh, we are only watching what happens uh, with this virus by seeing other countries who are just hitting, for example, their second curves. So for example, there are places in the world that experienced the initial wave of the epidemic. They went into severe measures to socially distance. And then when they came out, eventually they, they see a second spike. And so while this is painful now, and I hear very frequently people say, oh, there's no way I can cut down all of my activity until August. Well, we don't know what we have to do yet because we're still monitoring the data. Stay tuned. And I, I'm sorry to keep saying that, but again, in the case of a new virus, uh, it's irresponsible to claim you know too much because it's brand new. But what I, what I can say is that the more we, we, we spread out the pain, the, the, I think the, the outward projections for future respikes will be, will be dampened. Because um, you don't want to do, go through this and then ha have to do it again in July and then again cancel school in November when you decided to open schools up. You don't want to keep doing this. So uh, I don't have a particular marker to say this is when we'll absolutely know it's safe. What I can say is that as long as we, we continue to have new cases, we need to be vigilant. Have you had time to reflect on uh, the similarities and differences between this and the Spanish flu in terms of I think I've read that the Spanish flu actually had more um, deaths and infections in, in the fall, like its second wave than in the first. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so, so one of the things that, I, that, that happened is that in the second wave, if you, if you, if you don't know that much about uh, immunizations, for example, and, 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 um, and, and Basically, if we know a lot more about pathogens, there's a lot more you can do between waves. So 
without making any promises, I mean, people are working on advanced testing and uh, antibody testing uh, wasn't necessarily available uh, at, at that time. Um, and eventually, ideally, we'll have a vaccine, but that's probably a, a ways off. And I don't want to make an honor projection about when that would come. But, but eventually, we'll have these tools available. The societies that are rapidly controlling the infection are getting to uh, antibody testing. We're working on that quickly. The faster you can get to isolate, identifying isolate cases, the faster you can, uh, you can decide who's safe to go out and use it. Um, of course, it's a resource allocation issue. And as a federal, a federal society with, with multiple uh, levels of authority, uh, figuring out that resource allocation is an important component. But what happened in 1918, for example, when people decided they were all going to go back out, you didn't necessarily have people being, being vaccinated or tested. They just went back out, and, and those who were still susceptible were still susceptible. Um, we have ways, thankfully, in, in the current era to mitigate what happens after the first, first curve occurs. But it sounds like then we're going to need some antibody testing and or a vaccine before we can change or go back to, you know, our group associations. Well, I, I, th I think there are other there are other things that we, we have working in our favor as well. Certainly, um, we, we want to be able to see um, what comes out of tests now, for example, with with um, with uh, plasma uh, recovered. The, the, plasma, the blood plasma for people who've recovered. There's a trial starting up with that. So there, there are, there, we're ramping up as a society with more reagents for doing testing. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to make predictions that we have to wait for all of that's in place. Obviously, we're working very hard. We do have herd immunity working on, on our side as well. Eventually, um, if, if we go slowly enough, enough people will have gotten exposed to the virus, been asymptomatic, asymptomatic and had mild cases without overwhelming the, the healthcare system, that it's potentially possible to start lifting restrictions at some point without, um, without an actual vaccine being present. Um, we have to be careful. And again, it's so new and so early in our uh, phase of the curve, and frankly, for the entire world. We've, we've, had, we've known coronavirus uh, SARS-CoV-2 in, in that form of for less than a year. And so a lot of this is new information, but um, we just have to keep watching and we kept, have to keep updating our models and and using and, and letting both our predictive capacities as well as an observation of real-time data tell us when things start to turn around. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Christopher Morley. He's Upstate's Chair of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, advice for improving your sleep. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. This pandemic has brought the world into uncharted waters and left so many of us worried, worried so much that we're having trouble getting a good night's sleep. I'm talking now with Dr. Antonio Calabras. He's a neurologist and professor of neurology at Upstate who leads the Upstate Sleep Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Calabras. Thank you. Now, sleep is normally important. Is it more so now? Sleep is one of the uh, principal and basic uh, uh, health uh, pillars, uh, along with diet and regular exercise. If we don't uh, sleep uh, well, our health may be compromised. So it's not an illusion that I feel like I can think better when I've gotten a good night's sleep. That's real. It is uh, real. Given all of the stressors that we're all under right now, would you say it's it's common that people are having trouble sleeping? Yes, it is. Uh, it is a reaction to the current uh, environment. We are under a lot of financial and health uh, 
problems that have occurred as a result of this pandemic. And what about nightmares? Is it common for people to be having nightmares or vivid dreams during this time? People who have a high level of uh, stress and anxiety may have uh, nightmares. It's uh, more common in uh, children and uh, young adults than uh, it is in older adults, but uh, no one is exempt from developing nightmares as a result of the high level of uh, anxiety. So that stress and uh, perhaps uh, some depression caused by financial difficulties and uh, certainly the health problems, all that can interrupt uh, and and cause fragmentation of our sleep. Uh, Some people may have uh, difficulty initiating sleep. Those are the ones with uh, a lot of anxiety. And some people may have uh, difficulty initiating sleep and uh, maintaining uh, continuous uh, sleep. Uh, all this uh, is fragmentation and uh, poor initiation that affects our cognitive abilities the following day and our emotional level, obviously. That is a reaction to the current uh, situation. Is there anything we can do to prevent them? Well, actually, what we ought to do is uh, try to get uh, a better night's uh, sleep. Uh, as a result of being confined at home, there is a tendency to relax our uh, sleep-wake uh, schedules. In other words, uh, getting up uh, later in the morning and uh, watching TV until late at night. And this may affect uh, the ability to maintain a good night's uh, sleep. Furthermore, as a result of this uh, confinement, uh, there is a temptation, if not a tendency, to take naps. Naps that are more prolonged than uh, 15, 20 minutes may still sleep from the night. And that is another factor that may affect uh, nocturnal sleep. So we cannot resolve the pandemic, but we can be more regimented and more uh, disciplined our uh, sleep-wake uh, uh, schedules, and uh, try not to take uh, prolonged uh, naps. Now, the Sleep Foundation posted a bunch of guidelines for sleeping well during their pandemic on their website, sleepfoundation.org. They they mention on there about the importance of following the same schedule or a schedule um, with an alarm clock, winding down in the evening, things that you've already talked about. Um, what if you lay down to sleep? What if you do all of those things, but you lay down to sleep and all you can do is toss and turn? What do you recommend? Well, the uh, recommendation is uh, to get up and out after 20 to 30 minutes of inability to uh, sleep. But the last thing we want to do is to take any medication. However, there are people who are uh, chronic insomniacs who absolutely cannot sleep unless they take a medication, and they should consult uh, with their physicians. But again, repeating what we said before, the uh, discipline and, rec- and, and regimentation is uh, very important. Uh, I'm not saying getting up at 5 a.m. I'm saying getting up at the same time every day and going to bed at about the same time every day and trying to get anywhere between seven and eight hours if you're an adult. In terms of diet, are there any foods that will help us get a good night's rest? Or or con- conversely, are there foods that will interrupt our sleep that we should avoid? What is, the, what is helpful is to avoid uh, eating large amounts of uh, food late uh, in the evening or at night. Uh, leave at least uh, two to three hours after your main meal before you go to bed. Also, it's important to avoid uh, alcohol very late uh, in the evening because even alcohol does induce sleep, it may cause fragmentation of uh, sleep around the night and the effects of the alcohol disappear. So, um, yes, it's okay to have a glass of wine or similar uh, with your meal as long as it is not taken immediately before you go to bed. Oh, okay. 
Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Antonio Calabres about how to sleep well during the pandemic. So let me ask you, what if you have a household now that is sort of set up like this? You've got college kids or older teens that are back home. They prefer to sleep until noon uh, or they stay up late into the night. But you also have young children who are early risers. How, how do you all kind of live under the same roof when you're following different sleep habits? The household is uh, full of people, as you mentioned. It is important to retain some sort of uh, regimentation. These are unusual times and therefore unusual methods are required. And uh, certainly one is to create some sort of uh, regiment in the household. So does does the whole household need to sort of get into sync? The whole household needs to become uh, regimented and disciplined. Some people, maybe those with the most essential jobs, may find themselves working more than ever with long hours or multiple days without a break. Can they benefit from taking power naps throughout the day? No. Throughout the day, several power naps are uh, not uh, recommended. One power nap lasts 15, 20 minutes. But, uh, uh, let's say lunchtime or after lunch is uh, acceptable. Several power naps during the day is not acceptable because you are accumulating sleep and stealing that sleep from the night. So essential workers need sleep. They need to get their rest, even if they're working many hours. The time that they're not working, they need to be resting, right? Yes. Everyone has to rest. Can you talk about the circadian rhythm and what this major shift in our lifestyle is doing to our circadian rhythms? Well, the circadian rhythm, which is the uh, clock inside the brain that tells us when to sleep and when to be awake, uh, may suffer if uh, the uh, bedtimes and the times to get up uh, are disrupted. We need to impose our behaviors to be disciplined with what we eat, with what we, or how we exercise or how we work so that uh, we maintain the circadian rhythm under control. Otherwise, it's going to drift. Now, what do you say about someone who finds themselves trying to sleep more during this pandemic where they're, they'd rather just stay in bed? Is that healthy? Not healthy. And um, excessive uh, sleep will affect uh, nocturnal uh, sleep the following day. So again, if uh, an individual needs only seven hours, that individual should not spend uh, nine or 10 hours in bed trying to get uh, more sleep. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Antonio Calabres, a professor of neurology who specializes in sleep disorders at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Casey Newberg is from the Southern Tier in New York. She retired as coordinator and trainer of volunteers at Lourdes Hospital. She sent us two poems that look at the aging and death of parents. Here is Opening in the Attic and That's That. Opening in the Attic, the father, beloved unknown. One, I remember one sure thing, his hands, his long fingers pointing out words, his hand turning pages. My hand now touches the smooth, dark back of this handless brush. I sniff the stiff bristles, breathe deep, bay rum, find a lost hair, thread it into mine. Two, 
Near the bottom, I find a black and white image of a child with my name among four laughing faces, my sisters, trace of a perfect summer at Doc McCarty's farm when the only death we knew was our father's. The tattered photo glides from my hand toward the attic floor. I reach out to stop us from falling. The second poem, and that's that. The mother, known and beloved. While our mother was dying her arduous death, for weeks, when each of us came to visit, she'd draw us close and whisper, I'm going to hell. Even as we assured her, we wondered, what did she do? What could be worse than we already knew? By the time the priest was called, she was again tight-lipped and tough. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, what did they really know? Ha, we knew she'd come around. Good God, I've raised ten kids. I'll go wherever I damn well please. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <music>